0: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books and Law podcast on the New Books Network. We're joined today by Ken Ilgunis. He is an author, journalist, and sometimes park ranger in Alaska, I believe. Have you been anywhere other than Alaska as a park ranger?
1: Just Alaska, just a couple parks there.
0: Okay, so he has hitchhiked uh, 10,000 miles across North America and paddled 1,000 miles across Ontario in a birch bark canoe, and he's walked over 1,700 miles across the Great Plains, and so this is someone who was well-traveled in ways that many of us are not, but he's joining us today to talk about his latest book entitled, This Land is Our Land, How We Lost the Right to Roam and How to Take It Back. And so, Ken, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Law podcast.
1: It's a a pleasure to be on. So
0: why did you write this book? What brought you to the topic?
1: Um, I became a roaming rights advocate. I I became the roaming rights advocate. And I say the, not as in like principal roaming right advocate but as in possibly the only one in america i kind of just happened upon the subject um and you know i could give a long-winded answer but the short answer is that i went on this very unusual journey i hiked across the great plains from alberta canada down to the gulf coast of texas and i was doing that to kind of chronicle um uh the keystone xl pipeline and how that might affect landowners and when you're following a pipeline you can't follow roads because pipelines don't follow roads pipelines like to get to their refinery in as few miles as possible so they go across croplands grasslands private property so this meant that if i wanted to follow this pipeline i'd be walking over alberta prairie saskatchewan pasture montana hills South Dakota canyons, Nebraska cornfields, in order to follow this Keystone XL pipeline, I'd essentially have to trespass across America. And this just kind of um, just gave me a, a one-of-a-kind journey because, you know, when most people go on walks, they go on their uh, national park, they go on a proper um, uh, scenic trail like the Appalachian Trail, no one goes on a private property journey. And I was uh, the first of its kind, at least in, in modern times. And the the conversations I was having were just very interesting with folks, and it made me think about private property in a completely new way. For instance, I remember this one woman in Montana, she was a a rancher, and she asked me um, which roads I'm taking. And I said, I'm not taking roads, I'm taking the fields, and um, I'm trying to get to so-and-so town. And she said, oh, you must be taking road X and i said uh no i'm 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 actually walking in the grass my feet are in the grass and she says oh you must be taking you know road y and i said no i'm like literally walking across country and she just had this blank look on her face it just couldn't register that the the idea that someone was walking across private property it was just so inconceivable and I was warned again and again and again that I was going to get shot for doing this and I, I never thought I was doing anything nefarious you know I was just pl- placing my feet on grass I was taking pictures of sunsets I was camping in woods whenever I could find them this was a just beautiful country and such a a peaceful trip, and I just thought there was something wonderful about having a whole landscape to myself. But there was also something deeply sad about this. You know, why can't other people see this land? Now, now I've, I've, I told you I wasn't going to give you a, a long winded answer, and I think I think I just did that. But but this it, it 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 really got me interested in private property, and then I began to think, you know, how do other countries? conceive of private property what are their laws and when i began to write um my book about my journey trespassing across america um i I looked at the countries uh, like countries like scotland and england and sweden in sweden they have this thing called alamans which means every man's right and that's every man's or every person's right to essentially go wherever they want responsibly for hiking, camping, um, paddling a canoe. And I thought, you know what? Why can't we have a la rotten in America? Why can't we have the right to roam in America? And that set me off on my journey to write my latest book, uh, This Land is Our Land, where I become uh, a or the Roman rights advocate.
0: Okay. And so I should note for our listeners, this is really the second book that you've published on this topic. The first, as you mentioned a moment ago, is uh, Trespassing Across America, which is chronicling the journey that you just referenced. But this one is, uh, it references that journey, uh, that specific uh, trek you took. But it's really more of, um, I I would say this is kind of an advocacy piece, right? Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. Trespassing across America. That's more of like a, a fun Bill Bryson uh, travel narrative. Whereas um, and, it's kind of, and the right to roam is a part of that. I talk about private property a little bit, but it's more or less a footnote. And um, I thought, you know what, I could maybe take that footnote and turn it into this this treatise. So it was my idea. Um, you know, I, I kind of felt like I had the subject all to myself. Um, well, I think you I, do. I, I think I do too. Um, I, I shouldn't say that because there's a couple of law scholars like Eric Freyfogle and John Lovett and Brian Sars and Jerry Anderson. And these are people who I consulted with on on the making of my book. And they're writing about these these subjects. Um, but I think i'm I'm probably the the first to come out and really advocate for it in a very overt sort of way um, And I you know when, when you're one person out of 324 million and you feel like you kind of have an idea to yourself it's it's lonely but it's also invigorating and that sort of uh, invigoration um, kind of put put some fire in my belly and, and, and gave me the, um, the, the the spirit to To write this book well
0: i agree that it comes through your uh enthusiasm for this definitely comes through in the in the text and i find it intriguing i will forthrightly tell you i'm not sure that i'm sold on your argument but we can address that in a little while i um wanted to address the fact that you noted that you felt like you weren't doing anything nefarious and and i think that certainly it wasn't nefarious but of course the, the question is it's potentially illegal in the U.S. And so this is your concern primarily with uh, a law that dates back to the Middle Ages in the Anglo-American jurisprudential uh, realm, which is trespass law. And uh, trespass has been with us for a long time. Uh, but also, you you look to the history of English land use. And so in making your case for and ultimately, I think we should tell the, the listener forthrightly or up front, what is it that you want to change? And then we'll talk about some of the history that you review in making your argument. But what is it that you want about the current legal regime that you want to change here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So so basically, well, let's explain just briefly what the right to roam is. It, it exists in countries like Sweden, Finland, Norway, Scotland. These are systems that have very strong generous right-to-roam systems. There's also countries that have kind of a more partial system, and they consist of England and Wales, uh, Denmark, Germany, Poland. Uh, Kind of partial or uh, full right-to-roam systems are spread all across Europe. Now, a a full right-to-roam system, as it exists in Scotland, where I'm actually uh, talking to you from right now, um, it allows people to access not just public land where there's national parks and stuff but private land things uh, places that are owned by individuals it allows ordinary citizens To access these areas for reasons of education, reasons of personal transportation, you know, walking across the field to get to the bus stop, or recreation, whether that's hiking, camping, birding, mountain biking, horseback riding, Um, and this is called the right to roam here, and and you know, it, it, and we can get into kind of the the rules and regulations. It's not a complete free for all. It's it's very regulated. It's very clear in the law. But what I'm advocating for is the right to. I'm I'm advocating for importing the right to roam from, from these places to conceive of it in um, America, either on a national level, on a state level. Or a, a local level.
0: Okay, and so you take a look at these other jurisdictions, these other nations, and in in Scandinavia, for example, um, it's it's a tradition um, that has eventually become essentially legally recognized. But in, for example, England, uh, it's essentially something that's been imposed uh only r- relatively recently so uh can you discuss uh the effort and the resistance to that effort uh that you recount regarding the english context
1: that's right yeah um and it it you're right it's it's different than in sweden where something like alemannsrot and the right to roam has Essentially, always existed, but in England, it's it's changed a lot. The property has been the definition of property has been very dynamic. It's changed a lot. Um, So, going back to the Middle Ages, you have places considered commons lands. Um, These are lands generally owned by the community and can be used for a number of different purposes whether it's gathering wood whether it's their own sort of recreation whether it's letting cattle feed and th- these were owned by th- who exactly owned these was kind of unclear it was sort of a lord who got his landowning right from a monarch but the relationship between the lord and those people beneath him was complicated you know it was a, there was a general understanding that um uh the serfs uh, um, uh, made made food and did a whole bunch of other services, and the Lord um, protected them. We go through a, a period of enclosure, essentially starting in the 1400s, 1500s. It really picks up in Georgian England in like the 1700s and 1800s, and that's when acts of Parliament were. Um, enclosing the land, and we call it enclosing because uh, walls were put up, ditches were put into place, and this was to kind of uh, um, modernize agriculture. It was to um, uh, boost productivity, and as a result the commons got closed down. People no longer had access to land that they considered their communities, and um, it kind of approaches Something like our modern day system of private property, where one landowner can exclude whomever he or, me, he or she wishes. So then you have um, this this movement that begins in the early 1900s, and these are when local people begin to fight for access rights for walking rights. They want access back to these places. So in the early 1900s, you see all these walking groups form. And in uh, the 1930s, there's one especially uh, uh, dynamic group up in Northern England. And uh, they go on this mass trespass. There was this big mountain there. Well, not big mountain, it was like 3,000 feet. It's called Kinder Scout. And all of these people, about 400 young folks, they set out to this mass trespass because they wanted to take back this mountain which was owned by just a few aristocrats. So they go and they do this mass trespass and um, the six ringleaders of this trespass go to jail. And this just is, and they go they they they're put in jail for six months just for trespassing. So this upsets all of these walking groups, and they begin to kind of coalesce. And um, there's this huge ten thousand person gathering, and they're protesting this. And what's born is the modern walking rights movement in Britain. And eventually, uh, the group would form. Uh, it's called the Ramblers, and they would fight for access legally. And this kind of uh, continued all the way up until about 2000, the year 2000, when the labor government took over and they took on these walking rights issues and they passed something called the Countryside and Rights of Way Act. And this provides uh, people access to mountains, moors, heaths, and downs and some of those are just kind of fancy english words for unimproved grasslands Uh, and later in 2009 i believe they passed uh, an act that opened up all the uh, english and and welsh coastlines so here you see a, a movement that began with enclosure and then led to mass trespasses and then finally law now this only opened up about 10% of England and Wales. It's nothing like what exists in Scotland and Sweden, where you have, oh, about 85 to 90% of the land that's uh, accessible for public recreation.
0: Okay, and so this is a, a recent uh, political effort. in Scotland, too, um, was re- recent. It was in 2003 that there was a law passed in Scotland that allowed this substantial uh, access to private land, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So in Scotland, the situation was um, that they didn't really have any, even though Scotland is sort of its own country um, uh, within the broader UK system, they didn't have any um, legal capabilities to define their own property laws, their own land laws, not until devolution. That's when England and Scotland created their own separate um regional governments so the scottish government was reestablished, i believe in 1999 and one of the first things they did was pass this land reform act this was in 2003 they passed this land reform act of 2003 and it did a number of things but one of the things it did was it formally created into law the right to roam, which is uh, remarkable of all the right to roam systems because I believe it's the only one enshrined into law. The the, the Swedish one talks about it in the Swedish constitution, but I don't think it's formally recognized into law. So the Scottish law, it provides people with uh, recreational freedoms over private land so long as you take access responsibly. Um, And that means that you can mountain bike over private land, you can horseback ride, you can hike, you can camp, and you can do all these things as long as you do so responsibly. Now, there's also an access code that they published, and uh, it it lays out all the things you can and cannot do. Like you cannot um, camp or um, trespass around someone's home or their their yard. You can't um, uh, have your dog unleashed around livestock. You can't walk over vulnerable crops. Um, this only applies to um, non-motorized uh, getting around. As a land as a landowner, you also have some responsibilities. Uh, interestingly, like you're you're not allowed to put up a no trespassing sign. Um, it, When you're trying to deter walkers through what is now open land, you're not even allowed to grow hedges for the purpose of excluding walkers, which which I just love.
0: Okay, so um, do we know if there's been uh, this has been recently implemented or at least implemented within the last decade or so? uh, Do we know if there's been much litigation about the parameters of this use in terms of what is reasonable, what's unreasonable?
1: Well, I mean, there's there's been a few court cases, and John Lovett, uh, um, he's an American scholar who's who's chronicled them all really well. And there's just there's just very like common sense solutions. For for instance, there was this um, this one family who had some land, and there was horseback riders going through the land, and when it got muddy, they were just destroying the trail. So they um, it, it went to court and they figured out, you know what, this, this is good for walkers, but this area of land, you can't have horseback riders. So just little fixes like that. And um, there's this park called uh Lamonde, Lamond Loch Lamonde. Lamond. I always, I always mispronounce it and the Trossacks and they were having some um, uh, problems with litter along a lakeside so they banned all camping from there and when i talk to scots about that they're they always say oh you know like uh, this is the beginning of the end but when i see that i see it's it's, it's actually working you know this is, is it's working it's um treating property owners and government entities like their park service uh uh very respectfully they're dealing with the problems and not just letting this be a complete messy free-for-all
0: so, in discussing uh, the U.S. context, it seems to me that not only is there uh, an obstacle for those who want a right to write to Rome in the U.S. Uh, in regard to law, um, you would have to do it essentially um, at both the state and even potentially the federal level because, of course, private land goes across state boundaries. And so, there may be this federalism issue, but... Even beyond the law, it seems to me that your biggest obstacle is probably changing people's attitudes because you recounted the story of the woman who simply doesn't grasp at first blush that you're discussing traversing land, but rather she just assumes you must mean you're going down particular roads that you can't recall the names of, but instead you're trying to communicate to her, no, I'm walking the pipeline here. And so um, that seems to me to be an example of how well entrenched uh, no pun intended the view regarding the uh, sacredness of private property rights are in the US and that seems to be the biggest obstacle is that right
1: I I don't disagree with you at all Um, and I I I would say a, a couple things to that first of all this idea may not take root in America anytime soon. And I'm happy thinking of this idea and this book as an idea that could take off in 10 years, in 50 years, in a hundred years. You know, I, I'm just, a little bird who who caught a seed in his mouth in Scotland and is coming to distribute it, um, across the, across the pond to America. And it's kind of up to the ecosystem to, to determine if it, if it, if it wants such a seed. Um, so, so I'll say that, but I also want to say that culture is dynamic society is dynamic, how we think of private property is dynamic. You know, I, I spend a whole chapter um, talking about private property from our hunter-gatherer days up until today. And what I learned from all that research is, is boy, you know, um, this it, it really changes. It changes per country. It changes per era. So do I believe that uh, the U.S. is capable of changing in a way that would welcome a right to roam? And I say, absolutely. And I say, more so that I'd say the right to Rome is in our bones. It's in our spirit. It's in the American psyche. And um, more substantially, perhaps, it's in our history. You know, we essentially had, at least Euro-Americans, essentially had the right to Rome from the colonial days up until around the Civil War. This meant that folks in the colonies, whether it's New or the early states, New York, Massachusetts, Georgia, they had the right to roam, whether for fishing purposes, hunting purposes, or getting around purposes, and maybe even just fun purposes. Um, through the early stages of, of America, we did not conceive of this very rigid and harsh uh, and inflexible way that we see property now, back then, you had the right to walk over land that was unenclosed, which means no fences and there wasn't that many fences um back back in the eighteen fifties, only one percent of Texas was enclosed I believe uh, um, uh, almost ninety percent of the south was open range during that time, and you couldn't walk over um, land that was uh, improve. You were allowed to walk over unimproved land, which means that you, you're allowed to walk over land where there's no crops and stuff like that. Um, so we had kind of a a more, um, common understanding of land. Land was considered just something slightly more open, slightly, slightly more shared. So I think, I think that shows just in our short, Nations, very short history, that if we can go from this more open understanding of private property to this more rigid understanding of private property, there's nothing that says we can't go back to that more open understanding. Um, perhaps just with a more 21st century point of view, this will be less about hunting and fishing, which were necessary things to do back in the colonial days, but this could be um, more to fulfill our nature. And and recreation needs.
0: So you look to this past as a way of, um, a a kind of less of a story of a golden age, but rather than uh, as instruction for us to be optimistic about changing attitudes, but, um, I think that still begs the question of what is your suspicion about why the attitudes change? You call it a a rigidity regarding uh, private property. And of course, the enthusiasts of private property might say, well, wait a minute, it's less about rigidity than it is about efficient and effective uh, use of land. And the ability to exclude is something that uh, we need um, in the U.S. if we're going to be a modern industrialized nation. And so it's less about uh, a mentality of rigidity rather than uh efficient use and the ability to exclude is part of that what would you say to that
1: yeah well i'd, I'd say a a, a couple of things to that and one of the arguments i anticipated and i'm not i'm i'm going to get to what you just said but i want to add something first one of the arguments i anticipated when i wrote this book was that we, we're a private property country, we've always been a private property country, and we always will be a private co- property country. People would say, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they'd be rolling in their graves if they, uh, you know, heard about the right to roam. I, I kind of wanted to end that argument. I, I did, I, uh, so, because I think we're always like, oh, you know, we have this, like, uh, Originalist point of view, like the like the country always has to uh, 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 live up to the nation's founders. So I was so fascinated when I looked at these these early laws in in early America and looked at how the founders spent their boyhoods uh, thomas jefferson fishing in rivers um benjamin franklin perhaps uh, conducting his famous uh kite experiment on on um private property uh john adams you know the list goes on so i kind of wanted to to end that i wanted to show that actually we are not we we are not this private this rigid private property country down to our marrow it's it's been more complex than that it's been more dynamic than that now as 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 for your question and if private property exists for a a, a very sensible and logical um economic or social reason you know i'm i'm certainly open to the argument that that's the case for for certain areas for um you know maybe areas that you know where there's um Uh, a big suburban neighborhood, you know, it's not good to have people wandering into people's backyards and looking into people's uh, windows. Obviously I think that should not be allowed. Or maybe there's uh, areas where there is intense industrial agriculture and there's reason to keep people off that for reasons of uh, uh, efficiency and a a more rigid understanding of proper uh, private property may apply there. I, I, I wouldn't, um, enthusiastically argue against that. I would only point to European countries that are that are doing it well. And and when I study countries like Scotland or Norway or Sweden, and I see how private property and industry and recreation are all pretty much happily coexisting I mean if it if it works over there in these capitalistic western democracies why can't it work over in this capitalistic western democracy they get away with it uh why can't we here
0: and so in in an effort to create uh an openness to this and a receptivity to it it um you in this book you've You've outlined uh, some of the potential counter arguments, the one that I just mentioned about uh, modern industrialism and uh, uh, the efficiency and the need to be able to exclude. But uh, one re- uh, response that you anticipate is um, the uh, claim that, well, listen, we've got these public parks and the public parks are huge. Lots of land out there. Why doesn't that satisfy the uh urge to roam rather than having somebody come across my, uh, back 40.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is something I kind of mathematically break down in the book. When you look at the distribution of our public lands in America, it does have plenty of public lands. I'd say about 30, 35% of America is publicly owned. That means it's either owned by the state or federal government which is, you know, that's one third of America. That sounds like plenty of land to Rome. But 40% of that land is in Alaska, which is pretty much uh, unreachable to, to most Americans. And then the rest of it is is mostly concentrated in really low population Western states. It's Western states like Nevada and, and Wyoming and Montana, where there's really not that many people. So... You know, I grew, I grew up in, in uh, suburban Buffalo, New York. I lived in rural North Carolina. Um, you know, I, I didn't have access to any of these public spaces. If I wanted to go to a national park like I did um, when I was in my early 20s, I, I, I drove several days to get to Yellowstone. Granted, there was probably one closer to that. But my point is that these public places, as grand and amazing and um, as wonderful as they are, they're just really not accessible to most people. And when I think of the right to roam, I don't think of this once a year, week-long trip where we finally get to stretch our legs. I think of a right to roam creating a system an atmosphere where ordinary, ordinary Americans can step out their front door and walk across a field and take their dogs, or maybe just get outside of the suburb or town, you know, just a train ride or a bus ride away and enjoy a hike from there. It would just, I just think it would um, enable so much more um, activity in the outdoors. And as I argue in my book, there's a whole bunch of social benefits that come from having Americans in the outdoors more, whether it's, uh, physical and mental health, whether it's building social capital and social trust, or just giving everyone just a little steroid shot of, of freedom every now and then. And so, um,
0: in, in an effort to persuade people, that this is a legal change that should occur in order for the betterment of people who want to roam it would seem to me that especially in the american context because you noted the population well over 300 million people um you've had about a sixth of that in england so a little over 50 million population in in england and so uh You had this sustained almost, what, 70 year long, maybe a little longer, uh, active political movement on the part of admittedly a minority, but nevertheless, it eventually uh, persuaded a majority in parliament. Certainly, interest group politics are a norm for both Britain and the U.S., but the group that has to persuade either congress or perhaps on the state level uh different states and maybe that's where the change would occur first is at the state level it would seem to me that that's going to have to be pretty organized and um In other words, you're going to have to change minds, yes, but you're really also going to have to get organized in order to help change those minds. So how do you see that potentially coming to fruition in the U.S.? Because there are no, as far as I know, and I don't recall you actually uh, documenting any rambler-type groups in the U.S., right?
1: There's not. And in fact, when I um, got in touch with America's leading walking organization, America Walks, they they were generally supportive of my idea and they were like, "Yeah, go for it." But when I tried to explain to them what it was, they just really had no idea what I was talking about. They they just like like that lady in Montana, they couldn't really conceive of <laughs> walking over private land. It was more like more about making communities more walkable and creating more trails and like that. So you're right in that there is not a a an interest group. There are a couple um uh folks in the fight i'd say maybe the most prominent would be the surf rider foundation and they're um, kind of a beach organization which advocate for cleaning up beaches and creating more access and and things like that because you know you do have wonderful access to beaches in places like uh oregon and uh, hawaii but you do have limited uh, uh, access to beaches in, in place like Massachusetts and Maine and, and now Florida with a new law that was passed there. Um, so yes, there aren't that many. And where would such a group come from? Um, this may be outside of my expertise, but I could say a few things to that. One, um, the right to roam might, f- might be something that, interests folks who, um, think of themselves as, um, uh, socialist Democrats. So, uh, the movement that kind of was behind, um, occupy wall street or the Bernie Sanders election campaign, um, who are fighting for, uh, more equality, um, a more shared understanding of a more, Common good approach, kind of pushing back against the last uh, thirty or forty years of neoliberal economics. You might you might find some supporters in that group, um, but I should also say in Sweden, and this and this really interested me this was actually championed by conservatives. This was, Ala rotten was championed by conservatives. It, it was kind of a, a national pride sort of thing. Like we're really pr- proud of the land and we want to make it accessible to everyone. So when I'm thinking about, you know, the future of the right to Rome, I don't really want this to be um, a left issue or a right issue because this is something that, um, would benefit everybody. And um, the last thing I want to do is, is polarize it. And, and interesting, I had some uh, 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 a conversation with some folks in Wyoming recently, and they were um, a wildlife biologists and just kind of uh, passionate about the land and the animals, and they said Wyoming might be the first right to roam state, and they said they're probably going to send my book to some Wyoming legislatures and and that just kind of really confused me because i think of wyoming as this really uh conservative state and why would they welcome what could be perceived as this really liberal issue and it's just that you have these giant estates out in out in the west whether it's montana or wyoming or idaho and you have an impassioned group of hunters and sportsmen and fishermen who can't access their publicly owned creeks? They can't access their publicly owned Bureau of Land, land, Bureau of land Management land or National Forest land. And, and they want the right to be able to um, get to these places or at most even access them over um, on private property.
0: And was that uh, the viewpoint of the conservatives in uh, Sweden as well? In other words, was it an access concern or what was it? Uh, was there a philosophical uh, point that was construed as being in, uh, uniquely conservative that the Swedish argued?
1: I, th- um, I think it was more of a, a pride, and I guess you could kind of um, uh, classify that as a more of a, a philosophical point of view, rather than kind of a more practical issue of uh, of access. Um, this was something that celebrated the very um, uh, act of being Swedish, um, having access to this land and being able to, 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 to see it and experience it.
0: And another... Uh, it seems to me another transpartisan point that you make is that um, this is not merely um, a, a bunch of uh, granola hippies uh, who are wanting access to private land, but rather this is good for everybody. In other words, there's some certain mental health benefits that you stress uh, as being derived from being out in nature. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, there's just like countless studies. Uh, there's a, a wonderful book called The Nature Fix by Florence Williams, and her whole book is is basically uh, hammering home this argument that access to nature improves our lives physically, mentally. It, it helps bind communities. It helps enhance social trust. Um, and her her book can speak to that much better than than mine can. But I do spend a little bit of time, and there's studies that show that. Um, like, for instance, there's a Stanford study where they had someone uh, walk on this nice green campus and then there is um, then on the city streets of Palo Alto and they um, surveyed, they studied the, 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 the participants and they had just much lower rates of depression, um, anxiety. They just generally felt a lot better. And this is just common sense. Anyone would kind of know that um but 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 you're right i'm not i'm not just talking about the talking about this from like the uh, bearded granola eating backpacker perspective and in fact i should say that i'm not anti private property at all you know what like 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 and the the right to roam doesn't abolish private property landowners still get to own their land uh landowners still get to pass their land down to their children landowners can still build what they want whatever they want on it they can grow what crops they want on it all that the right to roam does all that i'm advocating for is a more shared understanding of of of, of private property
0: and in some ways that uh what you're it seems to me what you're doing conceptually is something that's existed a long time in English law. Uh, anybody who goes to law school in the U.S. and they, they learn English property law as part of their, their understanding of uh, modern property law in the U.S., they often talk about the rights of ownership as a, a famous phrase from an English case called a bundle of sticks. And each stick in that bundle is a different type of right that you get when you own something. And one of them is the right to exclude. Um, you have the right to sell, you have the right to inherit it. Uh, You can mortgage it. uh, You can use it as capital, et cetera, um, or as um, an asset for a loan. And you've got all these rights of use and enjoyment, but uh, you subdivide it because you're concerned with how those rights are actually implemented. So it seems to me that legally, one of the conceptual arguments you're arguing is this uh, does not abolish private property but rather it merely alters the nature of the right to exclude because as you've noted the right to exclude continues to exist you're not taking that right away but rather you're limiting it for one's private property
1: that's right and 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 we should clarify what the what the right to exclude is and generally every landowner has has the right to exclude except in cases where there's Easements and and other um, uh, legal implements, but it, it allows the landowner to shut off his or her land to other people, to post no trespassing signs, to put a um, to put up fences and walls, and to to place fines or punishment upon people who um, trespass over that. A- again, this right to exclude does not exist in places like sweden and scotland at least um uh, except for around their immediate property around their home and and yard and and the question of the right to exclude i think the question behind any sort of property law is um it is, is 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 a moral legitimacy is it morally grounded is the right to exclude morally grounded in my test for whether a property law such as the right to exclude is morally grounded is does it serve the common good because our property laws should be designed to serve the common good and if someone can convince me that the right to exclude does serve the common good then i'd be (laughs) i'd be i'd be um um, much more liable to kind of give up but I, i don't think i can be convinced that the right to exclude serves the common good. When, when you look at land ownership in America, it's, it's startling. The top 100 landowners in the U.S., they own vast amounts of property. The top 100 landowners, they own 40 million acres. That's about um, essentially about 20 Yellowstone National Parks. That's, um, if it, that, that land area, that's about the states of Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Maryland. That's just 100 people owning that size of land out of 324 million people. The last um, uh, survey of land ownership in America, that was in um, 1978. Uh, That was done by the Department of Agriculture. They determined that the top 1% owned 40 48 percent of all private land the top five percent owned 75 percent of private land and sadly we don't have any more up-to-date statistics on that but I would argue that that's either stayed the same or gotten worse as wealth inequality has gotten out of control so I think what you're seeing here is what as, as you're seeing with wealth inequality is land increasingly, Following into the hands of, uh, of of fewer and fewer of super rich landowners, and when I think of the next hundred years, when um, you know we're increasingly urbanizing, we're in- increasingly suburbanizing, and concentrating in these metropolitan centers, and all the land in between is increasingly um, being um, um, ob- obtained by few and few people. there's the possibility that we might experience a a crisis in recreation. And I think something like the right to roam is a a sensible solution. The radical thing to say would be, let's redistribute the land or let's take away the land. That would be the radical thing. I'm definitely not arguing, arguing that. But just simply opening up land for responsible recreation, I think that actually makes this sometimes brutal ruthless global capitalist world we live in it, it allows us to exist within that framework just a little bit more harmoniously you know when i think of of, uh, of of all that of all that plagues us you know people feeling a sense of of inequality people feeling a sense of unempowerment when you when you just drive down the road and you just look at all that land and you know you just know it's someone else's that you can't even step foot on it i just think that that breaks its way into the the national psyche a little bit and i think like if we were able to look at that field look at that mountain and say you know what that's someone's land yes that's someone's land but it's also sort of my land I think that would go a great. That would help us think of ourselves as more of a, a, a unified country that's in it together, that's a little bit more equal, that's got a, a, um, a shared fate and a shared sense of, of 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 land ownership. And I don't know. Like I, I think in the next hundred, two hundred years, an understanding like that just just might make the the country a little bit better.
0: So where do you go from here? As we began this conversation, you noted you're essentially a lone voice on this in the U.S. context. And so you uh, are probably going to go out to Wyoming and talk to some people out there and make your uh, pitch there. But how do you see your role in this uh, continuing?
1: Um Oh, boy, I don't know. Just like, you know, my first book was a book on student debt. My second book was a book on pipelines and climate change. And this one's on a right to roam. So I do have the habit of investing myself very intensely in a subject for a few years and then moving on to something different. And, you know, I just have a lot of interest and I can't see myself. I can't see myself being some right to roam leader for the next 20 years of of my life. I just got other things I want to do. I see myself as just that, that seed planter. You know what, I'm just, I'm just going to plant this seed in the ground and it's up to everyone else if they, if they want it to take off, but I want to give the idea the best shot it has. So, so, you know, like this fall, I'm going on a a bit of a a speaking tour to Northeastern colleges. So I'll, I'll present my ideas to to some young folks there and, and see if it applies. And, I've written uh, op-eds for High Country News and the New York Times, so, so I'm I'm doing my darndest. Um, but it's really up to other people. It's up to the idea if 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 it, it it wants to take root.
0: The book is "This Land Is Our Land: How We Lost the Right to Roam and How to Take It Back." And the author, Ken Ilgunas, has joined us today on New Books and Law podcast. Ken, thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure.